Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, March 21st, 1937, the date of what came to be known as the Ponce Massacre. On Palm Sunday, March 21st, 1937, a peaceful march in Ponce, Puerto Rico, was attacked by police who shot and killed 19 Puerto Ricans, including a seven-year-old girl, and wounded over 200 others. So here to discuss this incident, this protest, this massacre, and its legacy is, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello, Nikki. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Jody. Hey there. And our special guest for this episode is WNYC's Alana Casanova Burgess, host of the new series La Brega, which is a seven-part look at Puerto Rican identity released in Spanish and in English, just look at identity on the island and off. So Alana, thank you for uh, joining us and congratulations on this series. I really, I really love it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you are joining us from Puerto Rico. Uh, we should say that. Are you down there for a particular reason? Doing some reporting or? Uh, some reporting. Yeah. yeah. Some promoting some La Brega love. Good. Great. So, you know, I, Alana, we'll get to this event, but I'm wondering if you can actually start a little bigger picture and talk about how much the Ponce Massacre has a place in Puerto Rican historical imagination and Puerto Rican identity. How much, you know, what is its place as you see it? Well, uh, the Massacre de Ponce is basically, I mean, there, there's everything that leads up to it and there's everything that comes after it. But from my understanding, and I should disclose here that I did not grow up in Puerto Rico, I grew up in New York, but my friends, my family, my mother tells me, uh, they tell me that actually you don't really learn about it in the public schools here. And if you do, um, it's very briefly. So a lot of people tell me that they learned about it in college, which is somewhat shocking or after college, just, you know, figuring out history as we do as, as we live. And that's, that's really shocking because it's quite an important event in Puerto Rican history and also a very violent one and one that had huge ripple effects that people don't actually talk about all the time. So what is your sense of what led to this moment? Well, um, the 30s in Puerto Rico were, was a really interesting time. So you have the Great Depression going on in the United States. There is not the same amount of aid that comes to the island as everywhere else. So there's a lot of poverty here. Um, there were huge labor strikes in the mid-30s, sometimes quite violent labor strikes. 
And into that context comes this governor, this U.S. appointed governor, Blanton Winship. Um, it's important to note that there was not a Puerto Rican elected government until the late 40s, which is quite late. So the colony gets these, um, you know, U.S. appointed governors of whom Blanton Winship is one. And he comes in and he starts to crack down on these protests that are going on. And one of the protests that is scheduled is March 21st, 1937. Um, it's a protest, but it's it's um, meant to be peaceful, scheduled for the city of Ponce, which is in the south of the island, scheduled for Palm Sunday. It has like sort of two purposes. One is that the independence leader, Pedro Albizu Campos, was um, imprisoned by Blanton Winship. And so it's partly a protest of his imprisonment. It also is meant to commemorate the end of slavery in Puerto Rico. And so people are gathering in Ponce and about an hour before the, the march is supposed to happen, Blanton Winship says like, nah, you're not gonna do this. Uh, this, this event is being canceled. So people gather anyway. And then the insular police fire on the crowd. Um, 19 people are killed. I believe the number is some 150 are uh, wounded in that in that peaceful march. Um, it might even be more than 150. Yeah. I mean, it is a very, very bloody event. Uh, a child is killed. Many people, I mean, we can, we can certainly get to this, but there is an ACLU report that comes out later. The government itself never investigates, but in an ACLU report, it's found that many people were shot in the back there are no weapons found um, at the protest. And, you know, this this is so such a violent crackdown from the government on what is essentially a peaceful march. Well, yeah, it's about 253 people that are wounded, 150 people that get um, arrested. A seven-year-old girl is killed. Um, and the way that, you know, this massacre is covered in the United States is, is quite skewed. You know, the New York Times and the Washington Post report that um, that the protesters shot first. And so it creates this narrative of, you know, those those rowdy Puerto Ricans, those rowdy protesters. This is, you know, what what needed to be done in order to maintain peace or order. Um, and this is, you know, during a time when people are not I would say because we're still in the United States steeped in the Great Depression, as is much of the world, people are not uh, aware um, or even sympathetic to what's taking place on the island. Yeah. And I would add to that that, you know, it was Governor Winship who said, oh, the crowd had had fired first and they had fired on police. Um, But it was two Puerto Rican uh, newspapers, including El Imparcial, which publishes photos of the massacre. And that really brings to light what actually happened here. Even though, again, as I say, the the government of the U.S. never investigated. Governor Winship was not put on trial for this. There was really no repercussion for him immediately at all. And the newspaper is called the Imparcial? Yeah, which means the the impartial. Well, there you go. So they did their (laughs) job in that particular moment, I suppose. Yeah. I'm also really struck by the role of Franklin Roosevelt in all of this. It feels like he is really 
cracking down in Puerto Rico and and advocating and promoting the crackdown that's happening in Puerto Rico. Um, He has such a a rosy uh, image in the mainland United States. And of course, this doesn't affect his image in the mainland U.S. at all. And he comes off uh, pretty awfully in this story, not only as the person who um, appointed Winship, but it takes him until 1939 to recall Winship, even though by 1937, it's it's clear that this was a massacre, that the police had acted as a, a mob in this situation. Um, but not only is you know, nobody interested in uh, the mainland U.S. and pursuing those charges, but there just really are no consequences, which is pretty awful. Yeah. And, and Roosevelt appoints him, even though uh, Winship had this reputation from Nicaragua. He had been there supporting the dictatorship there. One of his first moves when he comes into office is to militarize the insular police. Um, he tries to put the pump the brakes on a higher minimum wage in Puerto Rico, which would have helped. So this guy comes into office like, you know, the writing's on the wall. Yeah. Um, so to that end, I mean, can you what is your sense of Winship's reaction in this moment? Um, it seems to be some some mix of specific fights, this agricultural strike, the minimum wage thing, maybe a sort of power trip on his on his part, to put it lightly. Um, but then where is there also this element of a growing nationalist movement? I mean, can you place this in the sort of larger sweep of of, of that? Well, you know, he comes into office in 34. Just a year later, the, there's another massacre, actually, which is a couple of years before the Massacre de Ponce, which is the Massacre de Rio Piedras, where a number of nationalists are killed. And, you know, I, the word nationalist can sound a little scary to us now. But when you live in a colony, the word nationalist has a different meaning. It, it's, based, you know, an independentist. Um, and so four members are killed then. Um, and, you know, when we think about the arc of, of violence in Puerto Rican history, there are obviously examples of nationalist violence against the U.S., but it comes in reaction to violence from the U.S. against them. So, you know, you have this event in Rio Piedras. Two years later, you have this massive massacre in Ponce, this sweep of violence in in Puerto Rican history in the 30s, it's interesting to, I mean, not just interesting, but it's essential to think about all of that in in the context of the colonial relationship with the U.S. and what people were fighting for. Um, And they weren't, you know, fighting violently to begin with. Um, And how long had a sort of nationalist independence movement been active on the island by this point? Well, before... Puerto Rico was a U.S. colony. It was a Spanish colony as well. So, you know, there's been an independence movement for, you know, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we think about Puerto Rico, it's it's one of the last places to abolish the institution of slavery. When we think about, you know, the United States effectively ending slavery in 65, Puerto Rico is 1873. Brazil comes a little bit after. Brazil's the last. But like if you are thinking about this in a larger movement where within about 50 or 60 years, people are still trying to figure out 
what liberation looks like, what emancipation looks like, what political enfranchisement looks like and economic enfranchisement. Um, And I think that um, it's important to note this because oftentimes people think that, you know, emancipation comes and like, boom, everybody should be happy. This should all be great. And it's like, no, this is just the beginning of a very long process of how we reckon with citizenship and how we repair the harm that has been done from slavery, from colonialism, um, and so forth. And so all throughout, you know, the 19 teens, 20s, 30s, um, violence is often the response um, from the state to oppressed people. And I think that's really important to note, you know, the narrative gets skewed that that poor people are, are marginalized or black people or brown people are rising up unjustly so um but they're often responding to the violence of the state and um and i think you know it's it's important to emphasize that agreed and that was the thing that really came through about this story is how much of it was just about control through various forms of violence and stripping of rights and imprisoning political prisoners and you know trying to abolish political parties and doing whatever is possible to um you know, create the outcome that the U.S. government wants on the island and using whatever force it takes to make that outcome come about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, many people don't know that it was actually illegal. It was forbidden to fly the Puerto Rican flag um, in, in the 40s. And one of the episodes of La Brega that we, that we tell is the story of Las Carpetas, which are these surveillance records, these surveillance documents, which targeted the independence movement, but also anybody who had any kind of association with the independence movement whatsoever. So if you like talked to, looked at, was were on the phone with, had a sister, like all of that, um, you would get you would get trapped in this network of surveillance, which really punished the independence movement and punished anybody who even had any kind of sympathetic leanings towards it. Hmm. So. You know, those we in the series, we talk about the ripple effects of that distrust because it wasn't just the FBI that was working here, but also the local police working in concert, um, in collaboration with Puerto Ricans who were spying on each other, informing on each other to the police. And those those wounds run deep, like a lot of a lot of people were uh, discovered when they got their surveillance records back and and this program is the only example in history where people get their own surveillance files back and they they open them and see that their brothers had been informing on them that their friends had been informing on them and there's never really been a process of reconciliation or truth telling around that here um and you know there's still a lot of fear it's it's even in the language that's used around, you know, be careful, te van a carpetear, be careful, they're going to make a folder on you. If you speak mm-hmm. out about a particular, you know, piece of news, or, or you talk about independence. So it's very much still like part of the discourse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, well, that um, brings us to the end of the episode. And I will say the episode that Alana just referred to from La Brega is the third episode. It's called an Encyclopedia of Betrayal. It's a fantastic episode. The whole series is really wonderful. So Alana Casanova Burgess, um, host of La Brega, thank you for doing this. This was really fun. Thank you so much for having me. And as they say, you can find that series wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to a podcast right now. So wherever you're doing this, you can also find La Brega. Uh, Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thanks, Jody. And Kelly Carter-Jackson, thanks to you. My pleasure. 
This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a network of independent, listener-supported podcasts. Thanks to all of you listeners who have become supporters. There is a form on our website where you can do just that. You can become a monthly member or just give a one-time donation if you are in a position to do so. It helps not just this show, but the work of Radiotopia in general. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, on our site is a way to get in touch with us. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can also email us, thisdaypod at gmail.com. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. Colin Nakua does transcripts for every episode. Find links to those on our website. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia.